The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. In partnership with the Columbus Dispatch, The Other Side podcast is featuring a series of special podcast episodes called In Black and White. The series is devoted to discussing race and its impact on society. Dr. Terrence Dean and I will be interviewing scholars, community leaders, and artists in relevant fields to try to answer some of the most important questions related to race and the black experience. And joining us today is Dr. James Moore III. Dr. Moore is the Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and the Chief Diversity Officer at The Ohio State University. I'm so honored to have you, Dr. Moore. Um, this conversation, what we were hoping to entail, will be looking at um, the impact of COVID-19, the pandemic, particularly on college campuses, um, Black um, youth, particularly in Black males, mm-hmm. the programs that you've instituted at Ohio State, the Bell Center, yeah. and all that work you've done, which is phenomenal work. Could you tell the audience, you know, the listening, you know, a little more about um, your background, but also the Bell Center and its purpose and why Ohio State? Certainly, it's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Dean. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of your show. My background is pretty rich and it's diverse. I'm a former teacher, school counselor, district level administrator. Of course, I went through the faculty ranks now, distinguished professor, as well as executive director for the Todd Anthony Bell National Resource Center on the African-American male. And I'm the vice provost for diversity and uh, for diversity and inclusion and chief diversity officer. So I wear a, a number of hats and some people say I need to retire some of the things that I do, but I like to tell everybody I'm having fun and all of it works. Uh, they work nicely together. Um, these administrator roles connect nicely to uh, my research uh, endeavors. Now, you talk about your research in the Bell Center uh, specifically, um, which um, I'm familiar with at Ohio State University, um, particularly working with young males, um, black males at the university, um, the critical work that is needed. Um, why, why implement it there at Ohio State during the time that you did? And what was crucial in that turning point, um, looking at black men, um, their um, retention rate at um, PWI, a research one school institution, a land grant institution such as Ohio State with large numbers of students. Um, the black men particularly, what was happening that was necessary to implement such a, um, a program to help them navigate um, spaces such as Ohio State University? Well, that's a thank you. That's a great question. And um, I, I can't take all the credit for it. Uh, far from it is took a whole village, um, a cross section of the university came together and they began to recognize like many universities, when you begin to look at the demographic groups, which demographic groups were not faring well uh, consistently. It's not unique to Ohio State. Uh, black males are usually uh, trailing in a lot of different indicators that we use in higher education and beyond. Uh, Dr. Mac A. Stewart was the vice provost and chief diversity officer at that time. Uh, he provided leadership as well as working with leadership in student life, and they wanted to study the issues. We knew where the um, retention graduation data uh, was uh, showing us, but we wanted to go deeper. 
uh, we wanted to know what what are some of those visible and invisible structures that are inhibiting their progress at the university. Uh, and so I was on the original research team uh, as a junior professor at that time and worked with a number of other colleagues. And we began, and what we came up with is that we needed a one-stop shop. Uh, we needed to provide, we needed a, um, a unit that focused on African-American males all the time, every time. And, and out of that, uh, let me just say, this happened in the early 2000s. So there was a movement. There were a lot of different things emerging in the late 1990s, early 2000. Uh, people became more and more interested in men's studies, broadly speaking. And so, um, you know, Ohio was the first state for a that had a commission on African-American males. Uh, and I think Indiana followed Ohio. Um, Ohio was a lot of discussions around uh, the status of black men and um, which other states, other places around the country, uh, they weren't having the same kind of discussions where you bring thought leaders, people in government, people in the clergymen and a number of different people together to say, hey, we got to do something about that. So to make a long story short, we had an African-American male. We determined we decided to have an African-American male initiative and we began to see some progress. And then afterwards, it was determined that uh, after our Todd Bell passed away because he had to retire from football and he was working with in working with our African-American males uh, through the initiative, um, Dr. Max Stewart said, hey, we're going to create a center. And when our center is not only going to focus on trying to improve educational outcomes for black males at Ohio State, we're going to develop best practices. We're going to develop structures and theories that can raise the tide for black males, not only at this university, but across America. And so I became the inaugural director. I was given a charge. They gave me a local budget, uh, but I had a national mission. And when you begin to think about uh, this national crisis, um, black males in America is the only group when you compare their African-American female counterparts that they never trailed. Um, I mean, they've always trailed the African-American female counterparts in matriculation in our education. White men passed white women in, I mean, white women passed white men in the mid-1980s. And so when you look within groups, um, women are doing better uh, than their male counterparts. And I would say uh, in other parts of the country and the world uh, are beginning to have greater conversations about these kinds of things. Uh, there's a proliferation of literature that has been published. Uh, you can do a Google right now. China is very concerned about the status of uh, the young Chinese lab because he's underachieving and low achieving at rates that they've never seen before. In the UK, there are concerns about the underachievement and low achievement of white males. Uh, because it became visible. And if you remember when Newsweek uh, did a, a publication, it said the male crisis and they had white males on the front cover of it. Uh, some of these things that we're seeing, like even today, over 800,000 men did not re-enroll in college as a result of COVID. 
And so it's always been, and I know the president, it's a lot of uh, that discourse going on about the president of Purdue and what he said, but um, I'm not defending the president, but uh, if you look at our large public universities across America, uh, increasingly it's becoming more and more women uh, than men. But the world didn't pay much attention to it until um, white males start to decline in the mm-hmm. educational space. Uh, uh, black males have been a mainstay uh, in this discourse and exchange. And uh, I made it a, a priority in my own personal and professional endeavors that I was going to do everything I can to kind of um, uh, mitigate some of the barriers that prevent black males from being successful. And I remember there was a time when I first got into this work that people would say, why would you waste a promising career uh, on uh, a research endeavor that everybody knows that you're not going to be able to change? And some people said it literally, and some people subtly sent messages. And now I can say that, you know, being steadfast and being quite um, stubborn, um, if my mom was living, she would probably say I'm stubborn. Uh, we made immense um Uh, achievements, but we still got a long way to go. I can tell you right now, most people, it's probably not a university uh, in the entire country that probably have these kind of numbers. Over 50% of our black male undergraduate students last year had a cumulative 3.0 or better. And when I first started, we had dismal numbers. Um, we had, you know, we've won a lot of awards. We've received a lot of uh, media attention about our successes with increasing re- retention and graduation rates. But you can't get uh, relaxed. Um, uh, uh, you can't relax on this kind of work because uh, before you know it, you'll be right back where you started. So uh, it makes me think about the original research that we needed a one-stop shop, uh, that we need to focus on this all the time, every time. Uh, because let me just quite be quite frankly frank with you, is that educational malpractice is a mainstay mm-hmm. among black men in this country. Um, too often they're seen as a part of a group rather than an individual, uh, regardless of their economic status or who their parents are, um, they're treated accordingly. And uh, that is quite taxing for so many of us. Uh, and, it, and it's inescapable. Uh, it doesn't end when you in K-12, higher education. It just has become a part of the life journey. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you COVID-19 has affected the entire world, uh, but the most vulnerable have been most impacted. Uh, as you look at the suicide rates, black males are almost four times more likely to commit suicide uh, than their African-American women, woman counterpart. That's unheard of, right? Uh, but some Social and behavioral scientists would probably say the numbers were probably always high, but it's how we categorize uh, the situation. Like, for example, we see young men who might be in urban America who might or in a situation where they have a gun and they have police officers outside and it's about 20 police officers with special uh, machine guns out there. And they say, I'm not going out like that. 
mm-hmm. and then they go out there and they get killed. Some might say that that could have been categorized as suicide rather than a homicide or, or yeah. some kind. Um, so we got a lot of work to do, um, but we like to think of our center as a place that we study exemplary practices that can be disseminated across uh, the enterprise, whether we're talking about higher education, K-12, or the workplace. Um, in America, uh, NIH funds centers that focus on women's health, and we talk about when men don't go to the doctor, they don't do certain things. Uh, I don't think in this country we spend enough, we allocate enough resources to address some of the issues that men suffer from that the world may not ever know about. They suffer in the dark, they suffer alone. Uh, and so I think it's a lot of sadness, more sadness than uh, people can detect, but the COVID-19 has uh, brought everything to bear in a way that we can, we're more desensitized to some of the needs that uh, black men um, some of black men's black men's needs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, that was I mean, you gave us a lot of information with so much powerful in in, in that um, how black men are affected. Um, the retention, you know, um, in, in, in higher education, um, talking about um, educational malpractice. Um, we have a lot to unpack with all of that 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 information. When you said that eight hundred thousand men did not return to the to the academy, was that were that black men or just all men total? All men as an aggregate. I okay. mean, I, I you know I believe and 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 so my dear beloved colleague Dr. Jolando Jackson of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, we created a, a international um, a conference that we call the um, uh, International Colloquium on Black Males in Education. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wrote a paper in the early 2000s and we re- began to realize that some of the things that we're talking about in America, we see it in the Caribbean, we see it in the UK, we mm-hmm. see it in Africa. Some of these things we're seeing all across the globe, and there are other scholars writing about it, talking about it, but we didn't have a mechanism to bring, you know, these scholars, researchers, and high-impact practitioners together. And so we created a colloquium, and we go around the world, but we tend to go to places that have some of the greatest needs. Like we went to Kingston, Jamaica. We didn't go to Montego Bay. Right. To King- Kingston is like being in Baltimore. <laughs> Montego Bay <laughs> yeah. is like being yeah. in, yeah. you know, uh, you know, one of the nice uh, Eastern Shore areas in in, in, mm-hmm. in South Carolina. Well, I'm thinking about what you're saying, and I'm thinking about the socioeconomic impact of all of this. Like, you know, we look at the sociological implications that is happening to certainly to you know urban communities, um, the transformation in a lot of those communities um, that that have taken place. And like you said, the impact of COVID-19, the pandemic has tr- um, significantly impacted persons. And I was thinking about that um, and wondered how that impacted particularly young black men um, as they transitioned from high school to college. Um, has, it, has, has a study began or are you all starting to think about how, and I call them COVID kids, um, and it's nothing I theorized, I'm going to write about it though, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but um, 
because these are kids who only know of COVID in their experience, especially younger kids. So this is going to be their reality, their norm. But for those who were sophomores and juniors in high school who are now probably first year students in college, um, and so that transition from high school was a uniquely different. Um, and so, so, so preparing them for college may have been a uniquely different experience. So younger black men, when they get to college, what I've seen now in my classroom, is that they're even further behind or there's a lot of anxiety that they are up against because they spent that year at home versus in the classroom or around other students. Now they're in person and on campus. And a lot of them I see are stressed, highly stressed. Um, their capability functionalities are just all over the place. And I'm meeting with these individual young men and they're trying to figure out like, I don't know what it is. and They can't put a name to it. Yeah. So I wonder if you all have started thinking about that and, and the impact that will have um, probably down the line of the next four or five years from now. Well, certainly it will have a tremendous impact for the most vulnerable of the black men, you know, right. typically those who come from rural and urban spaces because primarily because they went to schools in large measure um, that were under resourced. Um, and, and we saw that uh, across the state of Ohio, you know, um, many of our uh, black men and many institutions of higher learning, when you think about where are the black people, they typically attend schools that are most under-resourced right. and some of the most vulnerable educational spaces in the United States. And so they were already vulnerable before right. COVID and they became increasingly even more vulnerable if it's such a thing, primarily mm -hmm. because of the technological resources. We had to go mm -hmm. online, so we didn't have the um, uh, internet accessibility. And not only that, they didn't always have the best teachers and educators from the very beginning. And now you're asking them to deliver pedagogy online when they haven't had the proper training. Yeah. And so then the world places institutions of higher learning are start to say where they weren't prepared, but it's their preparation is not, they see it as a reflection of their capability, but it's more of a reflection of the kind of education that they were provided. Mm -hmm. And and so I see that on a consistent basis, but it does not limit the young people who go to private schools or suburban schools, primarily because let's face it, they may not, some of their parents that might be highly educated can provide technological resources to them, but some of them don't even know how to navigate uh, mm -hmm. technological uh, course mm -hmm. managers and those kinds of things. And it's almost most like with the technological space, some families lost their way because they couldn't monitor because it was the new way to monitor your child in terms of their progression academically. And so it's not limited to black folk. I'm hearing this from all walks of life. The challenges of balancing work and personal. Am I going to be able to keep a job? Am I going to keep be able to pay my rent? You know, and then not only that, I'm because we didn't really understand all uh, the nature of COVID-19 when it first occurred. You know, I'm going to keep everybody in the house and, you know, everybody's house is not as big as everybody's. And some people don't have the same kind of spaces. Some got bigger families than others and some got very small families. So now I don't have the social interactions that I'm accustomed to that we know some of the most powerful learning takes place in a social context. 
and we can mimic it through technological interfaces, but it's but we have it mastered in terms of the pedagogical practices. Our technologists have created tools for us to use. And this is some of the things that what our students would say uh, It's not so much that we are so tired of technology and having our classes. They're tired of classes that are not dynamic. They're not fluid. They're not maximizing all the tools that are ready available to professors and teachers uh, because K-12 higher education, they weren't prepared for it. And we had to go online and some professors never taught online before. Some teachers never taught online. And now you're going to deliver uh, high quality instruction. You're supposed to develop, deliver high quality instruction when you never utilize these tools. Now, you did the best you can do, but the best you can do is not good enough when you're already behind. Right, right. Right. And these are the, you know, the kinds of things that we have to recognize uh, in America. And, you know, I do urban education research and I always tell people urban education ain't black. Urban education ain't white. <laughs> it's urban education is a consequence of the urban ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Unemployment, low employment, housing, transportation. Those are the things that are exacerbated our urban systems in America. And and we have in society, particularly when we think about black males, you know, like I said, there we can go to let me let me back up. We can go to school districts that are predominantly black and black males will still be grossly underrepresented in advanced academic programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we have people in this country has virtually just said that it is okay. And okay is not what they utter out of their mouth. It is in their actions, in their behaviors. We're in a state of emergency. I was very fortunate early in my career when Governor Strickland was the governor. He allocated a large sum of money uh, to reduce the achievement gap among black males and other groups. And what was discovered in the data, kids from Appalachia, uh, they were performing at a higher rate than black kids in in the cities. And in some cases, better than some of the kids in the suburbs. And so when everybody liked to use the love to toss out that uh, economics is the primary reason why people don't achieve at the highest level, Uh, poverty stinks. Uh, and I think most people who ever had that experience will say that, but it doesn't mean that they can't learn at a very high level. What it means that uh, they need the proper resources uh, as that uh, their suburban or their private schools have in, in their arsenal on a day-to-day basis. Uh, we know uh, what work in this country, um, but I'm not sure whether or not we have the will uh, to mitigate some of the disparities that we see in this country. So with that in mind, how do students advocate for themselves in a situation like that? Um, particularly when we talk about males who are disproportionately, like you said, um, did not return, 800,000 men who did not return, but those who are lagging behind in the educational system and the higher education. Um, 
you, I mean, like I said, you created the Bell Center, has extraordinary resources, but every institution doesn't have a Bell Center. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. how do we help students in that regard to advocate or to get the resources that they need to leverage and get themselves at the same, um, I guess, pace as their counterpart, so that they can um, continue to matriculate and graduate? Um, and from a, um, a higher institution and, and find successful employment because that's a whole nother level of yeah. Yeah. work we but, have to do beyond that. I think you asked a great question and, and one of the challenges, and in fact, I just gave a talk the last two days on this. Uh, I guess this topic is, is emerging as a topic of importance again. I would say to you that um, most black, most people don't know what they need. Most of us live in a cocoon. You know, you don't know what you need or what you don't have oftentimes until you see somebody else have it, something that you don't have. Right, right. Some of our young people, it's not limited to black males, but some of our young people who come from these under-resourced school systems, they took everything that those schools had to offer. But it's sometimes it's not enough until they matriculate at Ohio State or or another institution. And so what we try to do in the work and what we try to um, uh, uh, ex- uh, underscore to people who who are trying to make a difference in these individuals lives, we're creatures of habit. And sometimes our habits got us to a very high point in life. But it's hard to do any more than what those habits produce right until you learn sometimes new skills until until you have make a cognitive reframe and these are things in my research that i talk about most people uh, they i tell them they don't really know what the real core of my work is they say oh you study black men you know you you do these things but i really study academic persistence Mm. Uh, a constant sustained effort. People would say, you mean resilience? No, no. Resilience is bouncing back. How do we help develop individuals to be self-regulated and to do the self-examination and say, I have these kind of goals and I need to find out what is it going to take for me to reach those kind of goals? Power skills and academic skills. For example, you know, my, my model is competence produce confidence. Mm-hmm. I say confidence plus confidence equals achievement attainment. I don't care. Oftentimes when I, the approach that I see universities use when they start these initiatives, I always say, what is going to, what is your theoretical framework was guiding the work that you're doing? Right. What are you, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Mm-hmm. And most people, they'll say, oh, we just want to expose them. They think exposure is going <laughs> to deal with deficits in your learning. Right. Right. Competence produce confidence, but confidence don't produce competence. Got it. Yeah. Right. Skill plus will. Right. Some of our young men have the skill, but they don't have the will. Right. Right. And some people like to use these terms and I'm always struck by we need to create a sense of belonging. Well, my son has a sense of belonging. He got a house. He got his own room. He got a computer. He got the latest and the greatest. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to produce the kind of outcomes that his daddy wants. Right. 
right? So in many ways, I have to challenge his sense of belonging. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And so what I'm saying to people, I always say what you're saying, does it work? And what we've been able to demonstrate in some of the work that we do, it works. Right. Because we stole everything from Morehouse College. <laughs> stole everything. Right. And now Morehouse call, College called us. Wow. Right. We've had over 40 something universities probably not many different entities around any kind of uh, demographic group uh, that people have come to visit more than the Bell Center. Mm. Minnesota, Texas, North Carolina. I mean, they either call us, send us an email. They looking for the magic wand. And you have to be consistent. First of all, you have to change the way young men think about themselves Mm -hmm. and their approach to the work. Right. And yeah. people, you can work hard all your day, de- all your life and still don't get no outcomes. Right. Right. And how do you leverage your resource? We talk about these things. And this is the thing that we talk about when you talk about skill and will. This is what I call I don't call at risk, but this is when I say a student is educated, is vulnerable or susceptible to the pitfalls of not reaching their dreams and aspirations. And. This is when I said I asked students and I did a net. I was funded by NSF. We asked students on a seven day span of time, not count homework. Keyword, not count homework. Mm-hmm. How many hours do you spend studying a day? Mm-hmm. And most of the students, they said, oh, I, you know, I did one hour, two hours. But it was hard for them because they counted homework as studying. Wow. And so the research suggests, though, every hour that you're taking Right. If you're taking 14 credit hours, you should study at least two hours. Right. Right. If you look at the social science research, Asians study more than anyone. Mm-hmm. Then some might say it's a correlation with time on task mm. and outcomes. Right. Kobe Bryant didn't become Kobe Bryant because he just showed up. <laughs> if you ever read his biography. Right. Yeah. If you ever read Michael Jordan's biography. He didn't make McDonald's. He didn't make he got cut from the basketball team. So if you study anyone who reached the pinnacle of success, they put the time in. Yeah. And so what we have to do, what we've been trying to do, and we you have to do it before they get on campus. And COVID made it difficult for me to disrupt behaviors. Yeah. And attitudes. Right. And dispositions. A way of life. So then what you would say that COVID just basically reinforced those habits that were already there. So by the time they get to college after doing this pandemic, they didn't know which you're answering my question. They find themselves flustered with the I'm anxious. I'm stressed. I don't know what's happening. Why can't I do this? I'm not doing well in this class. I can't figure this out. Yeah, oh. You're exactly right. Cause I, 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 we have a program called the Early Rival Program, and so many people were looking to study it, and they want to take a page out of our book. And and you know, a lot of these programs, you some you get credit. They call them bridge programs. Uh, the program was one day. We made it two days, three days. Now it's two days. And for years, I mean years, it had the highest retention rate on this campus. Right. For those who participate, and we didn't focus on no remedial. We focus on all the things that I'm talking about. 
Right. So it's like we make the assumption that you have the academic ability to be successful because you went through the rigors of our admissions process. Yeah. Now you have to believe it. And yeah. but when I tell them what I what makes me think that you might have problems, I do an exercise and I work with them and I work with the parents before they leave because I need parents to reinforce the things that we're going to do because mm-hmm. parents are the ones who develop, whether they got a college education or they don't have one, they help shape the aspirations of their children. Yeah. And so you have this. And then not only that, my son is a Boy Scout. I was a Boy Scout, but it looks like my son, he's going to achieve something that his dad didn't achieve. He's going to be an Eagle Scout, hopefully <laughs> soon. Right. And I always told people this, and I did karate. I was a yellow belt. My son was a black belt. So he's outdone his dad in a lot of things. But young men appreciate markers of success. Mm-hmm. Young men appreciate competition. All walks of life. I'm not saying women. The conversation is specifically on black men. So I don't right. want audience thinking. I'm not saying oh, women. No, right, exactly. My sister, my mother. I mean, I grew up in a working class community. It, it, everything we did was competition. Right. Period. Right. Everything. You know, we make a game into a something in my working class community. We, we didn't understand. My dad doesn't understand participation. Right. He doesn't understand that 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 mechanism that everybody wanted. Right. At least how I was socialized. And so mm-hmm. what I'm saying to you, military is another example. There are markers mm-hmm. of success that build self-esteem and efficacy. Right. And so what we did, we bought a wrestling belt in my early days for the students who had the highest GPA. Yeah. Man, you you'll be amazed what that did to these guys. Mm-hmm. And then we 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 we've always wanted to get one of our guys to be a road scholar, but our office doesn't help shape too, but they haven't been men, black men. And out of that, we create the top senior, graduating senior, ethics, scholastic achievement, leadership, and service. We believe if you master those things, you can do anything in your life. Nobody can stop you. And so our beloved athletic director and his beloved wife, they give us they, they the graduating student who win the Gene and Sheila Smith Excalibur Prize. They get a thousand dollars. Now they give it two thousand dollars and they give two students the top ones in our in each graduating class. What that does to the students, they say, I want to be on the king of the mountain. Right. That's something to them. Right. And people used to say to me when I first got here before we got to center, uh, they had academic recognition ceremonies uh, acknowledging 2.3s and 2.4s. I stopped that. Mm-hmm. I said, you can't get in grad school with that. Right. And they said, well, Dr. Moore, what about those students? I said, they got to keep working hard and we're going to keep work, helping to work hard. Mm-hmm. See, I played athletics. I was a football player. And where I'm from, many people thought I was really good. And one of the things what I learned about athletics, people do well when my coach never said, you're the best player on the team. I'm not going to coach you. Mm -hmm. He coached me harder than everybody else because he knew I was the best on one of the best on the team. Right. 
What we foster in our work is what we call success coaching. We're trying to help people constantly reach optimal success. And your optimal success, Dr. Dean, may not be the same as somebody else's. Mm -hmm. We believe that maybe you can come to OSU with a 3.0 without us. But you'll get a 3.3 or 3.4 or 3.5. Because we say all the time in our office, and you see it on our shirts, iron sharpens iron. And part of the malpractice that we see in K-12, too many of us, even my own journey, you look around, you look to the left, you look to the right, it ain't many brothers around. Right. And many of these brothers, they were the best in their schools. And when they matriculated at Ohio State, they looked to the left, they looked to the right. Man, this brother's bad. He just got his pilot license. He's coming in with 60 credits already. This guy, man, he got a full ride to Ohio State. He had a 34 on the ACT. I barely had a 24 on the ACT. But guess what? I found the, the continuum. It doesn't matter where they come from. If they start drinking our Kool-Aid, I've seen the ones that you most of us would have never thought that that was going to be one of the top. Because guess what? We minimize people, where they're from, who their parents are, and they have the most to grow. Sometimes people who go to the best schools, they've maxed out in their growth. And some of them of fatigue when they get here. So when I talk about anxiousness, what you describe, I'm not even at your university. One thing I can say about a big difference in the generations, and because I believe America, we did this to them, all we focus on is grades. All we focus on what school you're going to go to. We don't focus on how do you reach your full potential. And your full potential ain't just in the classroom. Right, it's yeah. other yeah. endeavors. Some of life is about who you know. Some of life is about what you know. But I can tell you one thing, Dr. Dean, if James Moore didn't know anything, you wouldn't be talking to him today. You don't get a chance to know anyone when you come from working class, sometimes working class, middle income, low income, or even low income families. You got to know something before you can get to the table. And then someone might give you access to their social capital to serve as a bridge to it. I got those kind of students and they're kicking rear ends. I got two brothers, two twin brothers. They're going to Microsoft and they've been kicking rear end. Humble beginnings, extraordinary endings. That's what we always talk. My guys are first generation college students to fifth generation college students. I had never met a black male first generation college student, but his great grandfather was the first uh, black football player at Ohio State in the 1890s. Wow. Wow. Right. And so you got to wear this. How do you give them the skills? How do you help them create the community that they want to live in? How do you help them develop the institution that they want to be in? Because guess what? None of us going to create it for them. Because if they did, they would have created it for me. They would have created it for others. But what we did, we create brotherhood, relationships. And guess what? Everybody can contribute to the advancement of black males. And I'm thankful for being at Ohio State because all walks of life have contributed to helping us advance this work. Being at Ohio State is one of the great wonders of the world and is one of the uh, dear joys. I don't know if I could do this work at the level that I'm doing it if I wasn't at our beloved Ohio State University. 
Man, I appreciate you so much, Dr. Moore. This has been such a valuable and fruitful engagement and conversation. I know the listeners learned a lot, a lot to digest and take away from um, the critical work that you're doing, the critical work that we as a community can, um, need to continue to do. So I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today and your passion, your vigor at your beloved Ohio State University. They are very blessed and grateful to have a man like you at the institution. Well, I thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, this is a fabulous institution. Columbus is a fabulous city. Yeah. Uh, I think all of us will say that we're not where we want to be, but we're not where we were. And so um, thank you for the work that you do. And I thank Columbus Dispatch for supporting this work uh, to shatter myths and share realities of, of various communities across Columbus and beyond. Awesome. Thank you. We'd like to thank Dr. James Moore III for joining us. And for all of our listeners out there, you can find this episode on Dispatch.com or wherever else you get your podcast. And please consider supporting local journalism like this by becoming a subscriber. And make sure you check back regularly for the next installment in the In Black and White podcast series. Thanks and try to remember to see things from the other side.